0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 28, Psalm 28, hear now the word of our God, of David, to you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 28 is at the the center of five psalms that are focused on the sanctuary. Uh, We saw how Psalms 20 to 24 are five psalms focused on the king, the Lord's anointed. Now Psalms 26 to 30 are five psalms focused on the temple, on the sanctuary. We we even hear David saying, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, I come in prayer toward your holy place. We're seeing in this section of, of the Psalter that, that there's this connection between the king, the Lord's anointed, and the sanctuary, the temple. Though, of course, the temple is always bigger than just The temple in Jerusalem, just like the king, is always bigger than just David. As we kept seeing in that Psalm 20 to 24, this is the Lord's anointed that even David realizes isn't me. There's the one who will come after me. Just in the same way. The sanctuary isn't just the earthly temple. Solomon knew that when he built it. Heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. They understood full well. The king and the temple are pointing to something bigger and better, more glorious, more beautiful, more powerful than anything that they saw in their own day. Because who is this song about? we said it said of David, which could mean for David, about David, by David. Uh, given that David wrote many songs, it's it's likely that many of the songs that say of David were written by him. But the point of this superscription is not that David wrote the song. The point is that it's a Davidic song. It's a David-centered song. Now, uh, it's interesting, as I, as I looked at this passage, a lot of people have come up with a lot of different contexts, and I'm just going to stick with the 4th and 5th century. So in the 4th century, uh, a fellow a n- named Diodore, who was from Paul's hometown of Tarsus, he thought that Psalm 28 was spoken originally about Hezekiah's illness and recovery. In the 5th century, uh, Theodoret of Antioch thought it referred to the time when Saul was chasing David uh, and said that, well, everyone encounters calamities of this kind from time to time. And then in, in Rome, Arnobius, the younger in the 5th century, said that Psalm 28 speaks in the inner man of Christ that he who committed no sins not be handed over to sinners. So, just, you know, in the 4th and 5th centuries, they said, some said, oh, this is about a, a a moment in David's life. Somebody else said, no, it's about a time in Hezekiah's life. Somebody else said, no, actually, it's about a time in Jesus' life. There's a reason why they had all these ideas. Because Psalm 28 was written for all of those and more. They all agree that Psalm 28 is speaking first and foremost of the Davidic king, the Lord's anointed. After all, it's of David. But the second thing they all agree on is that when we see this song in that David-centered way, then we will know how to sing this song with the Lord's anointed. We looked in Sunday school at some of the basic principles of of biblical hermeneutics and, well, hermeneutics in general. And if, if you try to start with yourself, then you'll stumble all over verse 8. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed, of His Messiah. It's only because Jesus is the anointed one and because God has heard Jesus that we can sing these songs in and with Him. But as we've seen throughout book one of the Psalms, when Israel sings these songs in David, when we sing them in Jesus, then we can inhabit them as we are drawn into this story of what God is doing in Jesus. And so that's where we start seeing how our lives are connected to Jesus' life. We are connected to the Lord's anointed and therefore we can sing these songs too. Our New Testament lesson comes from Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, hear now the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing uh, uh, he, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is sometimes referred to as Ascension Sunday because of the. it was actually on Thursday of this week. It would be the 40th day after the resurrection, which was the day when our Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. And as he ascended into heaven, uh, they're, they're asking him this question. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They, they understand he is the Lord's Messiah. He is the anointed of the Lord. He is the one that the Psalms had promised. He's the one that is going to, he is going to restore the kingdom. So the question is simply, are you going to do this at this time? And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't, they ask a yes or no question and Jesus doesn't give a yes or no answer. Because in one sense, the answer is yes, but it's not the way they're expecting. Because... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, actually, you're kind of missing the point of what I'm doing in my kingdom. It's not just—I mean, it's not just Israel we're talking about, because that's why the answer comes the way He gives it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Good, good, good. Yes, that's where we—that's where we should start, and in Judea. And Samaria. Oh, good. Yep, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get get all of Israel back. And to the ends of the earth. The purpose of my kingdom is to bring about what I, what I had promised to Abraham that all the ends of the earth would be blessed, that all the nations would be blessed, because I am the seed of Abraham who was promised. And so that's where in the Ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. there is now one who bears our nature. There is now one who shares our humanity, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is sat down on the throne of his father David. Uh, after all, the throne of his father David was always and only a type and a shadow of the heavenly throne that he was supposed to sit on it, just like that earthly temple was a type and a shadow of the heavenly temple so also the earthly throne was a type and a shadow of the heavenly throne and now there is one who bears our nature there is now the second Adam the seed of Abraham there is now the the true Israel our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father and because he sits at the right hand of the Father therefore we are helped. I've referred to Psalm 28 as a song for the helpless, because of this theme of help that you see both at the beginning and at the end, that in verse two and in verse seven. This theme of of help that is brought back again and again. Uh, now, our English word help oftentimes uh, doesn't mean what the Hebrew word Ezer means. Uh, we talk about the hired help where you hire somebody to do something for you that you don't feel like doing, or you don't have time to do. The Hebrew word "azer" is never used for that sort of help. Now, the English word help can mean the same sort of thing that it means in Hebrew. Let's say you're standing on a rocky ledge 200 feet above the canyon floor. Your feet slip, and you're about to fall to your death. What do you say? Help! Now, when you're saying help in that context, you're not saying, I really don't feel like doing this, so I'll hire somebody else to come. No, you mean, please save me. I am helpless. I can't do anything to help myself. So that's what the "azer" is in Hebrew. When the psalmist says, I cry to you for help, it's, I can't do anything to save myself and then number 7 in him my heart trusts and i am helped that's not sort of like oh i had a little assistance here no i am helped i he did for me what i could not do for myself so psalm 28 is a song for the helpless now this this opening line uh, david Powlison has commented nicely on it uh, who who actually uses this language to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me. I, I, don't know. Has has any of your children ever come to you and said, "Mom, Dad, be not deaf to me." I mean, that's. I don't know. Maybe now they will. But, um. It's. Some have have argued we should, oh let's let's retranslate the psalms and to make it you know more modern. And some translations do this. The contemporary English version says, If you don't answer me, I will soon be dead. The Living Bible says, If you refuse to answer me, I might as well give up and die. The message says, If all I get from you is deafening silence, I'd be better off in the black hole. Now, these paraphrases are useful. They challenge us to think about what's being said here. Now, the challenge with paraphrases is they also leave out things that are also important in the text. For instance, the pit. They all leave out the pit. The psalmist is not just concerned with death, although death can be part of what the pit is all about, but he's concerned with the pit. Now, the message with its image of the black hole does better than those who say, I'll soon be dead, but... The black hole is kind of remote. I mean, do any of you expect that you're going you're, you're, you're to end your day as getting sucked into a black hole? Probably not. Um, the psalmist does see the pit as a likely ending point to his story. After all, what is, what is a pit? I mean, well, think about Joseph. Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit. Uh, In Psalm 7, verse 15, it speaks of the the wicked digging a pit and then falling into the pit that he made for others. The pit can refer to the grave. So, for instance, in Psalm 30, we'll hear, "O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored my life from among those who go down to the pit. But going down to the pit is not quite the same thing as dying. Psalm 40 verse 2 says that God drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. Psalm 88 verse 6 says that God has put me in the depths of the pit. Now, In both of those cases, the psalmist is still alive when he calls out from the pit or remembers being in the pit. So the pit is closely associated with death and several passages will speak of the pit as the place of the dead. But the picture here is of being, practically speaking, among the dead while you're still alive. And I suspect many of you are like, oh yeah, I know that feeling. It's not a modern notion that depression makes you feel like you're among the dead while you're still among the living. The pit is where Joseph was left to die by his brothers. The pit was where Jeremiah was left to die by his enemies. When you go down to the pit, this is it's the same image we sang about in Psalm twenty three, the valley of the shadow of death. So the language of the pit allows for a considerable variety of situations. When you're alone, depressed, worried, under attack, you can very much feel as though you're dead. And when we try to just translate poetry into prose we will wind up removing the powerful imagery the poetry of the psalms was designed to encourage you to reread and resing them in your own setting it's it's why you can keep singing these songs your whole lifetime and every time you go through them you're like oh that's that's me that's me oh, I didn't see myself there before, but they were written or translated precisely for your situation because they weren't written simply as sort of the experience of David in in Once Upon a Time. Oh, that's nice. They were written in order to be inhabited and lived in by God's people. And to do that well, we need to see how they're, they're, yes, they were written for David and Israel, and they were—they continue to be sung as our Lord Jesus, the anointed king, is the one who brings us into himself and his own story. So that's where it's all good and fine for other people to paraphrase them, but I'd also encourage you to paraphrase them. It's why a good translation like the ESV is a great place to start. No, you're not going to say, you know, be not deaf to me very often, but... Um, how do you say that and how do you come to God asking God, please hear me in my midst of my distress. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Last time our focus was on seeing. We It was... All about light, gazing, beauty, seeking God's face, looking upon the goodness of the Lord. In Psalm 27, the one thing that I seek is that I may see God. Now in Psalm 28, we turn to hearing. To you I call, be not deaf. Silence, voice, please, crying for help, speaking peace. He has heard my voice, with my song I give thanks. The plea of Psalm 28 is that God will hear me, that God will hear me and help me. And verses 1 and 2 set the context of the psalm in terms of two places, the pit and the sanctuary. If you are silent, I will become like those who go down to the pit. But I don't want to go there. And so I cry to you for help. Hear me when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. And even as the pit means more than just death, so also the sanctuary means more than just the temple. When Psalm 150 says, Praise God in his holy sanctuary, it pairs that with praise God in his mighty firmament. The, the, that big blue dome above your head was was originally designed in order to, to be that. This is the place where we dwell before God. This the whole the whole world was created as a place where God could meet with His people, and because of sin, He then gave us temp, a temple to say, "Okay, we're we're we're, we're going to start again. We're going to start small, and then we're going to start building back up again." But Solomon. Also asked that not to, he didn't just say heaven of heavens cannot continue. He also said that when the Davidic king prayed toward this temple, he prayed that God would hear from heaven your dwelling place. The earthly sanctuary is the connector between heaven and earth. That when the when the Lord's anointed, when the Davidic king would pray toward toward the earthly temple, that would in a sense channel the prayers to the heavenly temple. Now, why do I put it that way? Because in John four, Jesus says there is still only one place where you can worship God. It's no longer the earthly temple. The one place where you can worship God is in spirit and in truth. The one place where you can worship God is in the Holy spirit and in the truth who is Jesus. The one place where you can worship God is the heavenly temple where you come to God in Jesus where you come to the Father through him and say God I need you help without you I'm I'm dead without you I got nothing Here at the beginning of Psalm 28 we see the the pit and the sanctuary the the picture of eternal misery and the picture of eternal blessedness We come each week, into the heavenly holy of holies because we recognize that our only hope is Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. But where I find myself right now, the psalmist says, is much closer to the pit. You, O oh Lord, are my rock. I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Last week, we, we sang that the one thing that we seek is was to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Psalm 26, we said that we will bless the Lord in the great assembly. But while that will be, that's not the way it looks right now. Right now, I'm in danger of being dragged off with the wicked into judgment. That's my plea in verses 3 to 5. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. I'm in peril of the pit, the place of judgment, death, and destruction. And I only have one way to avoid going there. It's only if the God to whom I cry for help helps me. But of course, the same God to whom I cry for help is the same God who will drag off the wicked to judgment. I mean, this, uh, Psalm 28 is all about speaking and hearing, so it's, it's no wonder that the defining characteristic of the wicked is the way they speak. They speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. We've been hearing the language of in- integrity in the Psalms. Psalm 24 says that the one who ascends the hill of the Lord is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. His heart is pure and his words reflect his heart. Psalm 26 declared, in effect, I am the blessed man of Psalm 24, for I have walked in my integrity. How, how can I say this? Verse 4 of Psalm 26, I do not sit with men of falsehood. So what's Psalm 28 doing? The the workers of evil are those who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. In one sense, we've all done this. We've all sort of spoken words, oh yeah, everything's fine, when it's not really fine. All of us have been guilty of betraying others in our words It's why we sang Psalm 25 a couple weeks ago, the prayer of confession, our acknowledgement of guilt. But verse 3 is not talking about the ordinary everyday sorts of betrayals. Verse 3 is talking about people who are actively seeking to destroy their neighbors. This is not some sort of petty neighborhood kerfuffle over hurt feelings. The wicked here are like the evildoers of Psalm 27 who seek to eat my flesh devouring people with their words. They speak peace. They say they are friends. They say they seek our good, but their true goal is to destroy us. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan would like nothing better than for us to think that flesh and blood is the real enemy. That way, he can hide in the dark and take pot shots at us. And that's why it's also important to remember that we are not the chief target of Satan's efforts. Satan doesn't actually care much about us. He wants to destroy the kingdom of Jesus. And so he'll, he'll ignore people who aren't in his way of, of going after the kingdom of Jesus. It's why we need to sing Psalm 28 and other psalms like it in the voice of Jesus. He is the son of David who sings this song before us. That's why those early fathers I mentioned earlier focused our attention on on how this is a song of the Davidic king, a song of King Jesus because his enemies rose up against him, Herod and Pilate, along with the priests and rulers of the Jews and they sought to drag him down to the pit. And when you start to sing Psalm 28 in that night, you start to see how to sing verse 4 as well. Give them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. How can we sing these words about others? If we are a people saved by grace, well, we should first pray that those who oppose us will wind up like Saul of Tarsus, So that they repent and turn from their evil. But what should God do about those who stubbornly persist in trying to destroy his kingdom? When you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed. When we pray, deliver us from evil. Well, this is what verse 4 is talking about. The souls under the altar, in Revelation 6, pray that God would avenge their blood. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 1, says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering. Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God is going to judge those who seek to destroy his kingdom, his people. And so Paul says that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let me remember that God says vengeance is mine I will repay. It's not that vengeance is bad, it's that we are bad at vengeance. And so God says, "No, no don't don't try to do the vengeance thing. That doesn't end well. That's my job. God is the one who will take care of vengeance." And so Paul concludes that section by saying, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony in you was believed. And I know sometimes we struggle with, how can a good and loving God inflict vengeance? Well, the answer is because he is a good and loving God and he loves all that he has made. Let me give you an example. You're walking down the street. You see a man grab a, a girl and try to run off with her. What do you do? Do you say, ah, who am I to judge? I hope not. No, you g- run after him and just bring her back and don't let him get away with it. And why do you do that? Well, because you love her, yes, but also because you love him. And it's not good to let him get away with that. It is not loving to let people get away with destroying the lives of others. When something bad happens, we want it to be made right. When the wicked get away with their injustice, we plead with God to make it right. And he promises that he will verse 5 because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands he will tear them down and build them up no more if if there really is a god if he really did make this world then those who oppose him those who reject the words of the Lord are facing a day of judgment and it's worth noting as we've seen over and over again in the psalms and the rest of scripture god's judgment is a sort of poetic judgment where they dig their own trap and they fall into it. God lets them, he lets wickedness destroy itself. He doesn't actually have to do much in order to let that happen. It happens because they're living contrary to the way God says, and that can't work in the long run. And when you go through the the book of Acts, uh, the apostles uh, continue to preach this message that the day of judgment is coming. Acts 2 says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Acts 3, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. In Acts 10, that he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. and Because... Judgment day is coming when God will tear down those who seek to destroy and build them up no more. And this is a reason for praise. Verse 6, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, we're, we're still in the middle of the troubles and miseries of this life. It's not, as though, it's not as though David now says, Oh, everything's fine now. But we know how the story will end even though we live, we are living in the middle of the troubles, we know that God will make things right. And so David puts this in the past tense. He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. God has heard Jesus. And because God has heard Jesus and raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, that's because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Therefore, he will also hear you. And... Like with the situation of Psalm 28, he, it may it may not be over yet, but you can trust Him. He is your rock, He is your strength and your shield. This is what our this is verse seven is the song of our Lord Jesus, and in Him it becomes our song as well. The Lord is my strength and my shield. Evil is in the heart of the wicked, but my heart trusts in the Lord. As the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And this is the song of our Lord Jesus because it can only be true for us if it is first true for him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Now notice how that works. There's the plural and the singular here. The the word anointed here is the Messiah, the Christ. The Lord is the saving refuge of His Christ. Because God saves His anointed Son, therefore He is the strength of His people. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Why does God hear you? Because He hears Jesus. And Jesus has united you to Himself. And because He hears Jesus, Jesus says, Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. We oftentimes think of Psalm 23 as the the song, the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. But Psalm 28 is also the shepherd's song. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Now, think about this language that David's using. The Lord is my strength and my shield. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. This is the language of protection and defense. Where are we in this picture? Where are we in this song? We are the the helpless sheep carried by the good shepherd. We are the helpless people Protected by the divine warrior. Notice that in this psalm, God does not give us strength. He is our strength. The imagery is all defensive. It's not, he gives us strength to go out and conquer. No, 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 no. That's not the point here at all. He is your strength. He is your shield. He is your defense, your defender your protector. You are helpless before your foes. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. You're dangling from that cliff and you got nothing. Help. He is my help. He is my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. Oh Lord our God, have mercy on us. Because we we so often come to you and we ask you to give us strength so that we can do it ourselves. But we come to you this day and acknowledge we don't we can't do that. We come to you because you alone can help us. You alone can save us you alone are our strength and our shield. So we come to you in Jesus' name and we ask that you would have mercy upon us, that you would be our strength, that you would be our help, that you would do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Have mercy on us, O God. Help us, we pray, that we might hear your voice, that we might rejoice because you are the strength of your people. You are the saving refuge of your anointed son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So save us, we pray, and bless your heritage for Jesus' sake. Amen.